Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, welcome. Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, and uh, we like to give our takes, our hot takes, and sometimes cool takes. Luke medium, lukewarm takes. Yeah, on the latest vehicles we've been driving and the latest news in the industry. But before we get to that, uh, I'd like Ben to plug a couple of his uh, publications that he writes for, and I'll do the same in a minute. So, Ben, where can we find some of your latest content? You can find my work at Motor Trend, Automobile Magazine, uh, Super Street, and also Inside Hook. Very fancy. What's Inside Hook? It is a men's lifestyle publication. Actually, I don't know if it's just targeted at men, but it's a lifestyle publication that looks at cars, music, and travel. Sorry, that was the first time I've heard that one, so I needed to ask. And for me, you can find my work at autotrader.ca, uh, motoring, uh, what is it? Motor Illustrated and uh, Nouveau Magazine as well. Um, but Ben, let's talk about a car that we both drove recently, a brand new car. This is the 2020 Toyota Highlander. You were off in San Antonio, and then I chased you. We didn't cross paths, which is weird. Because we uh, apparently have the worst travel agents in the world. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But we did drive more or less the same vehicle. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about the Toyota Highlander, and I will uh, will compare notes with you here. So for those of you who aren't familiar because you don't care about crossovers or SUVs, and uh, believe me, I understand – the Highlander is a three-row crossover. It's, cr- it's called crossover fatigue, I think. Yeah, it's it's a real thing. I mean, it, uh, here's here's how real it is. The Highlander has twenty-four competitors <laughs> in the in the midsize SUV segment. This was data that Toyota provided during during the drive event. So yeah, it, imagine tw- like if there were twenty-four Corvette competitors or 24 yeah. miata competitors you know what i mean it would be a beautiful world wouldn't it It really would be but instead it's not like that whatsoever and you end up with 24 two or three row crossovers in the case of the highlander it's three row all the way um mm-hmm. and cross- actually to be honest the highlander has like two very important competitors to talk about and that is the uh kia telluride in the hyundai palisade who came Came in hot this year with their vehicles and really like dominated the three row. In terms of critical success, I think dominated the three row crossover segment. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Agree? Well, we we talked about them very recently on on a few episodes. And I just wanted to bring them up <laughs> I know, again because contractually you're obligated to bring up the, well, I mean, the Telluride or the Palisade whenever the word crossover <laughs> is mentioned more than three times in a ten second period. Um, I mean, we've had so many podcasts. Remember the time when we had like the I don't know the Demon or the the gladiator and every week we had to talk about something new about those vehicles and we were like why are we doing this? it was a dark time there are a couple <laughs> but other that, okay. but i think there are a couple other competitors you can't rule out either in this segment i mean obviously with two dozen there's a lot but uh other really strong contenders are the cx9 from mazda which mm-hmm. is very nice inside and quite comfortable to drive and there's also the honda pilot which is a pretty good all-around vehicle regardless of how you feel about how these vehicles drive or how they look or whether they're perceived as bland or not, they do sell a lot of them. So Toyota is selling something like a quarter million um, of these vehicles a year. Like that's, that's the Highlander. Highlanders? The Highlander turns in a big, big numbers for them. Oh my goodness. And they've been doing that since 2001. I mean, they haven't been selling that many since 2001, but it was a very quick ramp up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And any case, 
Well, the Heidler has a very interesting history if you really want to talk about it. I don't really, but no, it is and kind we're not of going because <laughs> it's not like – it was like one of those first unibody SUVs. It, it uh, wasn't though. I mean they said that in the presentation, but it's not accurate. I mean – That's true. I guess the, the, the Cherokee the, the, came along. Well, the Cherokee was unibody from 1984. Yeah. Was, uh, and if you want to look fun. at bigger vehicles, the Mercedes-Benz M-Class – was around in the mid '90s, I believe, mm-hmm. mid to late '90s, and that was also unibody from from a luxury standpoint. Then it was Toy- one of Toy- Toyota's first unibody. No, maybe not actually. No, because they had the Rav. They had the Rav Four. But what it was was for it was a, it was a large <laughs> three row crossover. It was the first big. Th- it, so Toyota had been making three row vehicles, but they yeah. were Land Cruisers. They were big and truck the, based vehicles. Yeah. Land Cruisers and Sequoias and. Well, the Sequoia what came a little bit later, but okay. um, in any case. The Highlander is important to them. It's remained important to them, and it kind of got really boring. <laughs> the, the, the previous generation Highlander, it was good at what it did, but it didn't really stand out in any way unless you looked at the hybrid model because Toyota did this interesting thing that a few companies have done where instead of like focusing entirely on fuel mileage, they used the electric motor to give it tons of power. Right, And it was the most powerful version of the Highlander. It was 306 horsepower. It's kind of like the RAV4. The best version of the RAV4 is the hybrid. It's the fastest. It's the most fun to drive. And those are not things you think about when you think about hybrid uh, vehicles, right. especially SUVs. Actually, one of the things you said, which was the Highlander was very good at what it did, but it like finding exactly what the Highlander did was... Like I don't know. I, it was a very good jack of all trades. It did a little bit of everything, and it was never a poor choice. Is that the best way to put it? It was never like the worst choice you could make. <laughs> can you imagine if that's your advertising campaign? <laughs> yeah. Never the worst choice you can make, Highlander. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's some chocolate bars that have that strategy, or or pop drinks. Or I'm gonna say honestly, honestly, if you're hungry, is there a bad chocolate bar? Yeah, for sure. Like, like what is what's, that what's one worst, with Coke? Top with three worst chocolate bars. Uh, Three Musketeers. No, I love Three Bounty. Okay, yeah, Bounty, one hundred percent. What is even the deal with Bounty? What is the deal with Bounty? And Why I not just shave the... coconut right into my mouth? Yeah, the driest coconut possible, <laughs> and then hold I'm my thinking. mouth closed and tell me I've been a bad boy. Oh my God, that's the that's the Bounty experience. And I would say that that the Highlander was not really that kind of experience in the past. And definitely going forward, it's not that experience. And But you're right. The most important part about the Highlander, the most important thing to bring up is that it was available as, as this hybrid. Um, I don't remember it being particularly powerful, the old hybrid. I just remember it being very smooth and easy to live with. Well, and it, was, that's, it wasn't particularly powerful, but it was the mo- most powerful Highlander you could buy. Right. That's like, okay. <laughs> it's like being the most flavorful <laughs> bounty bar. Exactly. So moving, forward, we're gonna get so many people calling us about or messaging us about <laughs> bounty. Dude, being don't their add us to bounty, okay? If you love bounty, I'm glad you found something in your life that makes you happy. That's um, true. That's an important. That's important. But I need the some coffee crisp, friends. That's what I need. So so Highlander, <laughs> it's all new. Uh, it rides on the TNGA dash K. Uh, platform. It was funny. I was talking to my friend uh, Derek Powell, who's also an automotive writer, and he was he was saying that uh, we, he was basically just you know talking about the fact that we have all these these uh, amusing names for platforms now. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so there's going to be a game sooner or later that we're going to be able to play called Dangerous Street Drug. Or new SUV platform. <laughs> yeah, right? like TNGA K is killing hundreds of kids across the nation. Like it's just such a 
I don't know. It makes me think it's of not t- just. I mean, it's not just SUV platforms. I mean, MQB I think also make also works for cars, right? It, it makes me think of. Uh, it makes me think of TMNT as well. TMNT, TMNT. yes, TMNT. the old Ninja Turtle. Shout out to the bonus episode nobody liked. <laughs> oh yes, of course, the, the Turtle Wagon or whatever we the call turtle it, Turtle Van. Um, so um, yeah, it's on TNGAK, uh, which is a versatile large platform that they're using on a lot of different vehicles. But what that means is it's a quieter version of the Highlander. Yeah. It's more comfortable inside. They've added, I think, 1.2 inches of room for – I'm not sure if that's in wheelbase or if it's just in leg room. Mm-hmm. But uh, Yeah, it's a bit longer too, right? Like the car is longer. It's a tiny bit wider. Yeah. So, uh, oh, sorry. And TNGA – Sorry, go ahead. It's 1.2 inches more sliding for the second row. That's oh, yeah, what it the is. second and, row. And you have yeah. 84 cubes of cargo space now total, which is more than before. And that's actually a very competitive number. Actually, I found that to be not so competitive when compared to the, um, the as we mentioned earlier, the Telluride, the Palisade, and even the Subaru Ascent. Uh, not as much space in those two vehicles. So what are, the, what are those vehicles offering? Um, I have it in liters. Well, that's not useful to anyone. I know. No one's, no one's drinking Coca-Cola. So then, We're trying to load an SUV. Come on. So then I can't help you with any of that. All right. So it, it, let's just say that it's a, your opinion is inaccurate that's when it comes fair. to when it, Well, I mean, if you can't back up the data. Um, anyway, so it's, it's a bit bigger inside, but not a lot. And I think that's good. They didn't make it too huge. Uh, but the, um, you know, the, the major change, it wasn't so much the size of the vehicle or the platform itself. There were a couple things that really stood out to me. The first is the interior is way nicer than it was before. Would you agree, Sammy? Absolutely. Um, and that's been happening across the line with uh, Toyota products. They've been really upping. I mean, they've always had good quality interiors, but they never really matched it with materials or, or you know, the sort of, yeah, the mix, the mix of materials is always kind of poor in, in Toyota vehicles, loaded with hard plastics. Um, and although those things were, were, were put together pretty nicely, I found them to be kind of uh, penalty boxes in some cases. And I think that now Toyota has kind of turned a corner. Um, and it reminds me of when – you remember when we were complaining a lot about Chrysler or FCA products and they used to have these terrible interiors and then suddenly it's like a, a switch was flipped and they were like, oh, we can make good-looking, you know, really plush interiors as well. And I think that's happening at Toyota as well. So it's it, – like you said, it's just uh, suddenly when, when you touch something, it's not hard plastic anymore. It's, it's, it's yeah. kind of a nice – it's either leather or something that's leather-like. I can't remember what they call their, their fake leather, but it's, it's decent. I mean I drove models of the Highlander that had the fake and the real stuff, and there's not a big difference. Hmm. Um, and another big point in favor for the Highlander is they've – Entune doesn't exist anymore. The, the terrible infotainment system – okay, I say terrible. The not competitive infotainment system because the truly terrible one is the Lexus one, which right. I think is called N4. Um, but Entune was not great. It just it didn't look nice, and it was bl- blocky the the graphics, and it was clunky to use. It's gone. They don't even talk about. They've walked away from the Entune name. They have a beautiful new infotainment system. There's two versions. I think it's a seven inch and maybe a, a twelve inch screen yeah. that they offer. Or maybe it's eight inch and twelve. I don't remember exactly. And that 12 inch is really solid. It's uh, it's pro- and more than that, actually, worth talking about is that both systems come with Android Auto and Apple CarPlay support, um, which should, which first of all, kudos to Toyota for her finally responding to its customers' demands. I think a lot of people were worried that they didn't have Android Auto or, or Apple CarPlay, and I, 
I'm wor- I don't know if everybody uses these kinds of systems. Um, I certainly do, and I know I don't represent all of the drivers of these cars. I never use it, but I did use it. I also it. know that you don't yeah, no. I know that you don't use it. But I did use it during the drive event and um sorry, it's it, they're eight inches and twelve point three inches, the screen sizes. And on the twelve point three inch screen, I what I liked about it, and this was my previous problem with either of those Android Auto, Apple CarPlay systems is they would take over not just your phone, but also the all your screen real estate. So if you wanted to ask, sorry, if you wanted to access part of the vehicle's functionality, you would have to get out of Android Auto and like go find in the menus what you wanted to do. With the 12.3 inch, the top tier system on the Highlander, there's always one side of the screen and you can slide it back and forth, whichever side's more convenient. So whether you're the passenger or the driver, but it maintains the menu structure of the Highlander's uh, stock system so yeah. you can access those features and not lose what you're doing on the screen whether it's navigation or music or something with the uh, android or apple integration i thought that was really cool and that is actually really cool and i want to add as well i was in um when i was in japan for the tokyo motor show i joined toyota at their uh, research and development institute uh, area institute i suppose what did they and- do to you there sammy I don't want to talk about that, but what I really do want to talk about, well, actually, I should talk to somebody about it. My therapist has been unavailable. You really should. But um, let's get back to the Toyota thing. They are working on new infotainment uh, interfaces that are that are really, it it is really interesting to see how they're they're pulling it off. They really want to make a sort of um, fresh operating system full of, and and they're adapting to it all the time. They have ways of, of testing it. Um, very quickly in automotive um, applications, and it seems really cool that they're they're trying to be on top of and and almost at the forefront of user experiences. And I think that you're seeing a little bit of the fruits of their labor labor here with the Highlander because it does seem like again like they've turned a corner and they're like, oh, we've got infotainment down as well. So the other big change when it comes to the Highlander, aside from the interior and the infotainment, is and the, the platform. Hi- well, I don't think the platform was a big change. I didn't really see. I mean, in terms of how it drives, it's still a big, floaty SUV. If anything, it's it's floatier than anything else on the market that I've driven in that segment. I'd say that compared to the Pilot or the Telluride or the Palisade, it's a vehicle, and definitely the CX-9, it's a vehicle that didn't really feel sharp. And I don't need it to feel sharp. I don't think anyone really cares yeah. um, in this segment. I'm fine with that. But it is something think- that, it's something that yeah. I noticed. I think it is a little bit more responsive than it used to be. I think it's more responsive than the Pilot um, in particular and the Atlas, uh, or at least more comfortable to drive than the than the Atlas. And I think that Toyota's got a really good blend of, of responsiveness and um, and comfort with their with their vehicle. But let's talk about what's going on under the hood, right? Yeah. So the 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 V6 is pretty much unchanged. Uh, you yeah. still got two hundred and something odd horsepower, two hundred ninety five horsepower. Think, yeah. And um, it's got an eight-speed automatic. It's everything you'd expect from that type of drivetrain. No real surprises, no complaints. Fuel mileage is pretty good, 24 miles per gallon. It's not that different from the year before for front-wheel drive models. Uh, But the big change, Highlander Hybrid, it's no longer a V6. It's no longer power-oriented, Sammy. Yeah, it's actually fuel-efficiency oriented. And more so than that, it's like extremely fuel-efficient. Uh, I have the numbers in liters per hundred. You mind talking about miles per gallon for me? Yeah. So they went from a. It's actually almost thirty percent more efficient than the year before. They went from twenty nine miles per gallon combined to thirty six miles per gallon, and there's a couple of reasons for that. The first yeah. is the, the switch to the four cylinder engine. It's it's a uh, two hundred forty three total system horsepower. Which doesn't sound like a lot, right? No, it, and it's not a really lot. Low. 
It's not a lot. And, and it's a two and a half liter engine. You have a pair of electric motors with a CVT. And they stuck with the nickel metal hydride battery pack. It's not lithium ion. And I asked them why. And they're like, look, this technology, it's inexpensive. We understand it really well here at Toyota. We've been using it a long time. And uh, we love how that battery pack fits in the car. It's under the rear seat. You don't lose any passenger room. You don't lose any cargo room. They've made, been able to increase the efficiency of the system, the, the power management by 10%. And the rear engine, in they, they wouldn't give... It was really weird. <laughs> they said that the power ratings of their electric motors were their secret sauce, whatever that means. But they they wouldn't give them the exact details other than to say that if you... Get the rear motor in the vehicle has another thirty percent more torque, so you can you can um, than the old one. Yeah, than the old one. But the interesting thing is, as well, you can get a front wheel drive hybrid, which you were never able to do before with the Mm -hmm. Highlander. So that's a big part of why I think you have it's it's a little bit lighter, so you have the better fuel mileage for front wheel drive models. But even across the board, it's more efficient. Um, and you know, the, their, their weight savings has actually gone across the board too. They, they put aluminum in the hood and fenders. They mentioned that they have a res, like the, the rear hatch is made of resin. It should make it lighter. Yeah. It's, it's 300 pounds lighter overall. The car overall. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that's pretty impressive for a, a crossover. The hybrid in particular, my experience with it was extremely positive fuel mileage wise. And I'm talking not front wheel drive models, but uh, all wheel drive vehicles. I saw that the the onboard computer was reporting something like 40 to 44 miles per gallon during my test drive with a bunch of different trim levels. And I wasn't even thinking about fuel mileage until I ended up returning it. And I was like, I better note the, the fuel mileage of this drive. And I was super impressed. And that's not just good figures. That's like extremely good figures that's it's it's like head and shoulders away from from other vehicles in this class i believe that another hybrid that's being offered in this class is the um what's it called the there are two ford the ford Ex- I, I only know the ford explorer hybrid so there's the, ford the other Ex- one the, there's the ford explorer hybrid which is a totally different deal it's it's more oriented towards i think it's like 400 horsepower something crazy yeah. like that and then there's the mitsubishi outlander Oh right, of course. Which is a terrible vehicle that no one should buy, and that's a PHEV as well. Yeah, and I'm I'm very confident in saying that. I mean, okay, let me qualify terrible vehicle. It, it, if we were ten years ago, it would be a competitive vehicle. But the fit and finish, the features, the price point, nothing makes sense for that vehicle. The, the uh, design, interior and exterior design yeah. alone is where is it feels like it's out of uh, the previous century. It is really not a competitive vehicle in that sense. So I don't really think that the Highlander has any direct competitors. No, in, hy- uh, in hybrid form. In hybrid form, yeah. The the there's something really important to talk about with these vehicles, and that is uh, how they're used. Sometimes they're used as family vehicles, and other times they're kind of used as uh, as Again, like I've mentioned before, jack of all trades. If this is something that's being used to go to like a cottage or camping or something like that, towing might be some kind of um, demand from the buyer. And in that regard, that's where the hybrid really doesn't um, doesn't seem that competitive. The Explorer hybrid has about I think five thousand or more towing capacity, while the Highlander hybrid has just thirty five hundred pounds. Yeah, and you have five thousand pounds in the regular Highlander. But I'm going to say, if you're interested in fuel mileage, I mean, regardless of what you're t- of what vehicle you're you're towing with, your fuel mileage goes out the window when you tow. Oh yeah, of course. So r- of right course. there, that's another thing. Also, the average trailer weight in the United States is around three thousand pounds. So oh, yeah, most people are not towing more than that. It's it's it, everyone likes to think that we're towing horses and big trailers filled with solid concrete, but that's just not happening. Um, uh, but yeah. I, I, in terms of driving, 
I think that the power from the four-cylinder hybrid is totally adequate. I don't think anyone's going to miss it. And Toyota said that the reason they backed away from the V6 hybrid is because they listened to their customers and their customers were like, look, we're buying the hybrid for fuel mileage. We're not buying it for performance. So that's their reasoning. And I can buy into that. I think it's the only thing about the Highlander that really makes it stand out. I mean, overall, the new model is quite good. It's... It's something you would want to test drive along with all the other vehicles we mentioned at the top of the podcast in the segment, and maybe you'll like it more. Um, personally, I think the Palisades interior blows it away. And yeah, from and, a value and I think pers- the Telluride as well. But from, um, a value, from a value perspective, the Toyota is also about $3,000 more. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's not just at the top level. I believe if you move through the trims, yeah. you're going to notice that difference. And it, it's not $3,000 more vehicle, in no. my opinion. So that's a, that's a tough sell. I mean, if you're a Toyota fan, you're going to love it. It's going to be great. If you're on the fence, the extra value presented by Hyundai or Kia is really going to be appealing. And you're not going to miss... I don't think the Toyota offers anything that those vehicles don't, unless you're talking about the hybrid. And if you're a hybrid exactly. buyer, you're already only buying this vehicle because you have no other mm. choice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you're if you're looking at this uh, vehicle as a value play, you won't find it. It's packed. It has that Toyota tax. It is going to be more expensive than the other vehicles in the lineup. And even if you get the front-wheel drive gas model compared to the other front-wheel drive um, uh, competitors. And uh, when you're at the fully loaded platinum all-wheel drive hybrid, you're talking about $50,000 excluding delivery. Uh, so maybe about $52-ish thousand dollars, which is a lot of money. Um, and and it can, you know, you're going to have to deal with that kind of uh, value. I think if you're in this... In this um, class, you're shopping in this class because you want um, a lot of space and you also want to benefit from good fuel economy, then there's nothing, nothing even comes close. This is the main reason to buy the Highlander Hybrid. I, I probably would actually shy off from the gas version of the Highlander and I would recommend the, the Highlander Hybrid if like almost I don't even want to talk about the, the gas hybrid, and, uh, the gas model. And Toyota's really pushing the hybrid too. Right now, the Highlander hybrid is about 10% of sales. But over the next four years, they really want to move that number and they're looking to double it to 20%. So um, They should they, have done something about the pricing if they wanted to do that. They really well, could have um, improved the price. The well, price maybe pressure. there's going to be incentive. I mean, Toyotathon's on right now, isn't it? Is, isn't it always <laughs> Toyota? It's always Toyotathon somewhere. It is. So uh, yeah, maybe you'll get a deal. Um, but Sammy, anything else you wanted to talk about the Highlander before we moved on? Um. I want to talk about the design. Do you think that this car got prettier or changed its exterior design in any significant way? Because I feel maybe the old one was anonymous, was was super anonymous, and I'm looking at this one and I'm like, I don't see the big difference here. I don't know if it, that Toyota has a, a designer that can talk to me about just how much effort went into the exterior design of the vehicle because it's not as much as what went into the interior design, that's for sure. I mean, I don't have strong opinions about it, but I think it is clearly different. I think you can see a lot of Supra in the vehicle, especially that rear haunch where it it comes up, it flows up out of the rocker panel and into the rear wheel well. Rear wheel well. Um, It has that more of a muscular, beefy look. Uh, I don't think it's ever been pretty, and I don't think it needs to be, but uh, I didn't have a problem with the exterior styling. I think it's very bland on the exterior, and uh, especially in other... It, it looks almost identical to a, a Subaru Ascent in some ways, and I don't know if that's a good that's a good uh, look for Toyota. But you know what? Let's stop blabbing about this car, and let's talk about some other things that we've driven lately. How yeah, about- so a- another vehicle that's a little less anonymous, but also still an SUV, because lucky everybody, <laughs> um, it is the uh, Mazda CX-5, 
And in particular, I spent a little bit of time with the diesel model. They which, did it. They made the diesel. <laughs> they did. They made the diesel. But Sammy, are you ready for the sad trombone? <laughs> I'm. Oh, I'm always ready for the sad trombone. So I only spent a few days with the with this vehicle. I was traveling, and um, the diesel motor is here. But mm-hmm. there are a whole bunch of butts that go with it. <laughs> yes. First of those butts, 168 horsepower, 290 pound feet of torque. Well, the horsepower is not that great, but the torque is great. That's awesome. That, yeah, I, wouldn't awesome. Call that a, until, I wouldn't call that a sad trombone. trombone well, it, maybe yeah. not. A, maybe not until you compare it to the turbocharged four-cylinder you can get with the CX-5, oh, which yeah. has 250 horsepower and 310 pound-feet of torque. Yeah, that's right. And, but there's there's a, a, another sad trombone, Sammy. I'm ready for this one. Are you ready for it? Mm-hmm. I think it gets 30 miles per gallon on the highway. Oh. 29 or 30 miles per gallon. Oh. Sammy, that's... Can you think Not of another vehicle that has a diesel engine that gets that much that, that gets that particular fuel mileage? Um, are we talking about maybe the the Equinox or the no. the Ram Eco Diesel pickup? Oh yeah! Oh my God! Really? <laughs> yeah, it's twenty. I believe that vehicle is twenty nine on the highway, and I think the F one fifty diesel is like thirty or thirty one. Yep. That, so, now that I'm looking looking it up here, I really wanted to like this vehicle. But it's very, very, very hard to tell someone to spend extra money on a less powerful version of the vehicle whose fuel mileage is not competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, I drove it. It drives fine. Uh, it's I, It was cold while I had it. And in the cold, that engine was loud. Uh, I could really hear the diesel under the hood from inside the vehicle. That's not a very premium experience when you're paying a premium price. And it's something that's a little surprising from Mazda because their vehicles are edging towards the luxury segment. And we've gotten used to them being quiet and smooth. Um, And the the power is fine, but it's really nothing to write home about. It is slow on the highway. These are all things that if it got 40 miles per gallon, I would be like, wow, that's, that's cool. I'm willing to make that trade. But I just can't. It's very hard for me to get my head around it, Sammy. I uh, I totally understand. I I think that and what's make what makes the diesel even more of a difficult decision or a difficult conversation is that the the gas the regular gas um, naturally aspirated gas and a CX five is very good. The turbo is excellent. It's not just like very good. It's one of the best in this class. Um, particularly if you're looking for a premium experience and something that stands out on the road because I think it's probably most one of the most attractive. Uh, compact crossovers and this diesel i think really sours the experience you have to really be sold on um a diesel sort of experience right like i don't know what that i don't know what kind of buyers like oh i have to be on top of this diesel thing that's my car and that's it um i don't know why you would right especially no and especially when you consider the uh the beating that diesel's taken you know recently in Mm -hmm. in in the media i want to i'm going to correct the the numbers um you can get a front-wheel drive version of the vehicle that's 31 on the highway and 29 overall. That is it's, still not great. The all-wheel drive model is 30 on the highway and 28 overall. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it is really not great. I mean, that's right up there with a full-size pickup. I mean, that's it's wild for a compact – and that's – I mean, it's a 2.5 no, – what is it? 2.2. liter turbo diesel. Yep. Um that's really that's really tough. So the, the uh, Equinox that you were mentioning earlier, the Equinox and the GMC Terrain, they are yeah. 40 miles per gallon on the highway, almost yeah. 40 miles per gallon. I think that's 38 or 39, and they're combined 32. So their combined is matching, it's beating the uh, highway mileage of the Mazda. What do you think went wrong? I mean, I remember that Mazda has been spending a lot of time trying to get 
their vehicle certified for for North America, they had to add a DEF system. And I think that was something that they were not anticipating doing. They didn't want to do that with their vehicle. I think uh, I think what went wrong is just emissions. I just think they couldn't meet emissions and make the power that they wanted. And they compromised. And it's possible that that compromise was fuel economy. Mm. And it's too bad because I like the CX-5. I think it's a good vehicle. I just can't recommend this model. Yeah, it handles well. It has a gorgeous interior. Um, it starts at like $42,000, which is the same. Uh, you know, I think you can get a Highlander hybrid yeah. at that level that's going to give you way better fuel mileage. <laughs> and with it, it, sure, on paper, it has it, it, not only not only does it have way better fuel mileage, it has close to 100 more horsepower. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's heavier and it's bigger, but it's still beating you. So, yeah. I mean... I, I don't see this vehicle lasting on the market. I'm surprised they brought it at all. They must have tried, thought, hey, we need to kind of recoup some of the engineering costs we poured into this. That's the only thing I can think of. Um, but, yeah, it's really too bad because I really do like the CX-5. I was really hoping that um, having seen and heard and read about the, the CX-5 diesel, I was hoping that the experience would be different than what's listed on paper. But from what I understand, it's not. It's very much as advertised. Um, and probably getting the turbocharged gas motor is the better bet. Um, and is this vehicle only available in certain trim levels as well? That motor is certain, available in certain trim levels as well? I think It's possible. That, like, it, I, I, don't, I don't know. You can't get like a base CX-5 diesel, I'm sure. But uh, no. I mean, with so the I price... That, even hurt, that hurts it even further. Well, the price starting at 42 grand, I mean, it's obviously not going to be a base trim. No. Um, and... Is there anything else you want to add about the the CX five? Uh, no, that's that's pretty much it. It's interesting to talk about like alternative fa- uh, powertrains in this segment. There are a lot of them. I mean, we talked about the um, Equinox, which is available with the diesel as well, and then there's the Rav four hybrid. Um, there's this diesel. There, it's it's kind of cool to see that there are more options coming, and there's plenty of turbocharged options as well. It's cool to see that there's going to be so many more options for people who want. Um, more than just a traditional um, gas powertrain and can get something like a diesel or a, a hybrid, but maybe not this Mazda. So uh, moving on from the CX-5 diesel, uh, Sammy, I believe you wanted to talk about a certain other uh, – three SUVs in a row. Yeah, and, we're, we're uh, with a hat trick. This one is a newer model, mm-hmm. and I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it. Actually, I was very excited to drive this, and I drove it particularly because I had the Cadillac XT5 like a couple of weeks ago. And so I drove the uh, what I thought was a competitive product, the Lincoln Aviator, which is Lincoln's new. I guess it's a it's a midsize no a large three row SUV. No, it's mid it's midsize. I mean the the Highlander's midsize. This gets to be midsize too. It's tough because the Aviator has big uh, a bigger product above it, which is the Navigator, and it has another big, fairly big product below it, which is the Nautilus. And, the Nautilus uh, is not that big. It looks kind of big. I don't know. Um, and so the the Aviator sits in this interesting, you know, white space that that Lincoln didn't have before. And I wanted to drive it because one, I don't think people really associate um, luxury and Lincoln as strongly together as they might have in the past. In fact, I can't remember a time Lincoln made a very very strong product other than the Navigator. And I've been looking at this Aviator, and I think it might actually have the chance to to stand up to the standard that they set with the Navigator. Okay. And that's because this product has a rear-wheel drive-based um, platform. It offers a twin-turbocharged turb, twin 3-liter V6, as well as a hybrid 
um, model with a ton of torque. I think like 600 pound feet of torque. And the gas model alone just makes 400 horsepower, which is pretty impressive as well. And the interior design has really um, stepped up as well. There's really nice plush materials. There's a high-end um, infotainment system. And I want to see if this is like the real deal. And honestly, what they've done is they've taken the Navigator experience, they've shrunken it down a little bit, they made it a little bit more affordable, and then they put it on sales, the Aviator. I do have a couple of criticisms with the vehicle. I think it's not the prettiest car on the road. I think the exterior design isn't quite there. It has a very weird front end, but the rear end and the side profile are pretty strong. It's also significantly larger than it looks, especially in comparison to, say, the XT5, uh, XT6. Sorry, It has way more uh, trunk space behind the third row, and that's because it's a seriously longer vehicle. There's so- a longer wheelbase in, in length. So how but, different how different is it from the Explorer that it's based on? Um, I would say that the materials, the design, um, are the main differentiators here. There's also a bunch of different features, tech features and ride features that help differentiate the Lincoln Aviator. It has this, um, you know, it has like those co- continuously damping suspension systems. This one has um, the capability to to read the vehicle and road at some ridiculous. Okay, here it is. It's it's What's it called? Um, I have this number. 12 sensors monitoring the vehicle's motion and the road 500 times a second, and it makes setting adjustments up to 100 times a second. That's a lot. That's it. Like, it almost seems excessive at how much the suspension is trying to adjust itself for the road ahead. But there's also this um, system that uses the camera, the front-facing camera, and the front-facing radar, which can scan the road ahead. It can see, like, potholes and different variations in the road and um, get the suspension system ready for it. So as a result, the ride in the Aviator is extremely smooth. It does iron out the road in a way that few other vehicles on the road do. And to have that kind of technology, that kind of experience in a Lincoln is pretty impressive. I feel like here in Montreal, that system would short-circuit within two, two, three hours. Yeah. Um, and like seriously, the the XT6, for example, it has something very similar. It it not to the front facing camera system, but has um, the 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 adjustable. They call it real time damping system. It adjusts the suspension every two milliseconds. And the two cars rode fairly similarly I, in that regard um, on most normal roads. But I think you know with all those potholes or or you know like manhole covers or things like that or speed bumps the Lincoln would probably feel much more natural over that. So I would say that the kind of ride experience is is higher quality in the Aviator rather than the Explorer. I also want to add that they've done a lot of really small details that add up, and it might sound like a gimmick, but like, yeah, things like ambient lighting or the the beeps and chimes inside the vehicle of the Aviator... um, are all done by the Detroit Symphony well, that, um, that Orchestra. Makes absolutely. First of all, I'm glad they're getting some work. Right? <laughs> okay, but, so when I first read about this, no, no, no. When I, whether it's a Casio keyboard or whether it's like a bone flute made from like a, a walrus, or I, I just you know, it, it's that is the purest form of marketing. Of marketing, right? And I thought that when I read it, I didn't, I, I didn't even. Um, I remember reading that and being like, "This is just a gimmick. It's just a, th- a way." And to then the door the chime. The door chime happened, and you sat there in the driver's seat, tears said, running down your face at how beautiful, beautiful. and melodic the sound was. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, more or less. I mean, it's a little bit exaggerated about how long I sat in the vehicle. I just went, 
oh, that sounds nice. And then I kept driving. Um, and <laughs> there's been so few vehicles where you end up saying, yeah, that beep sounded all right. Like no other vehicles ever made me say that. So kudos to them in that regard. I also want to add that like the um, Evoke that we had a while back, and it had the, the control scheme on the steering wheel that changes all the time because of whatever you're looking at or whatever systems are on, the Aviator has something like that as well. The controls on the steering wheel will change. You know, they, they have different symbols and different lights on them to indicate that this function is active and now you can press this button. I can't and, wait until these steering wheel controls have a random button. Yeah. Like a, 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 it's like randomizing your steering wheel controls. And then yeah. it was, it's like a game to figure out if you're going to be adjusting the cruise control or if you're going to be opening the rear hatch. Absolutely. Um, I, I agree with you. There was also an extra button on the steering wheel, which weirded me out. Um, if you would imagine the vehicle, you know, you're usually holding the vehicle's uh, steering wheel at, uh, I don't know, nine and three. And don't uh, add imagine, Sammy. Imagine it's a clock, I suppose, and you would have it at the nine and where the nine and three numbers are on a. He's doubling down on nine and three. Don't on add a him. Traditional twelve-hour clock, but <laughs> what if it's uh, a twenty-four-hour clock? Is nine. that is that um fifteen and what would the other one be? <laughs> is it is it fifteen and twenty-one? Yeah. Or is it three and twenty-one? No, 21? no, it would it would be six and <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. okay. Anyway, um, if wow. you imagine the steering wheel at the 10 o'clock position, there is a button on the steering wheel that activates the voice recognition. And I Does it change be... the steering wheel from 24-hour to 12-hour <laughs> no, clock? Okay. It doesn't. Okay. Um, so I found that to be a, re- a really curious placement of that, um, of that button. Um, especially because it's like on the inside of the steering wheel as well. It's not like on the back. It's on the top. It's very bizarre. I mean, they're starting to put con- they're starting to put buttons on the on the rim of the steering wheel, like all around it now. How and long until you can just to- yeah? Okay, two two questions. How long until you can just clench your butt cheeks and activate voice recognition? <laughs> Second, weird. there used to be this thing called um, I want I think it was called the the rim fire, um, but it was a, a horn that in the sixties. It was a com- I wish I could remember the name. It was a horn in the 60s where instead of like hitting a horn button on the steering wheel, you squeezed the steering wheel. And the idea was in, in an emergency situation, it was going to be a lot faster for you to do that. It's a more natural impulse to squeeze the steering wheel than to actually take your hand off and hit the horn. So that seems like a really good idea, except back in the back in the 60s plastic technology wasn't really that great so what happened was over time the plastic in the steering wheel shrunk <laughs> and and you had these cars where the horn would be going off continually as long as the ignition was on the horn was sounding and it, i think there were two or three years of production and it was like across a bunch of different ford and a bunch of other companies they what bought these the steering wheels and um yeah it was a really bad idea oh. I, I just thought that was that was funny. I mean, it sounds it's one of those things that sounds like like back then they had um, automatic headlights as well. Back in the sixties, they had a big. I had a Lincoln that had a from the sixty six that had a big sensor on the center of the dash that was meant to pick up the lights uh, mm-hmm. of oncoming vehicles and turn off your brights, but it just didn't work because they didn't. The technology wasn't there yet, but they wanted to offer the features so bad that they just they're like, screw it, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I would say that the Aviator has been a, a pretty good, a pretty strong showing by a Lincoln, and it was it surprised me in that regard. I wasn't expecting it to be so strong, but um, I will add that I think 
it's a little expensive. The model I had was it, it was pretty pricey. I'll get the uh, U.S. pricing now because I'm never prepared for our our podcast really. Um, Except when you're sending me images of 24-hour clocks that are clearly not 24-hour clocks. It doesn't matter. It looks like a thermometer, everybody. It is, a therm- it is not a thermometer. Absolutely. If your thermometer stopped at 24, this is what it would look like. <laughs> this is what it, and started at 1, this is what it would look like. I don't know where you – honestly, that sounds like a hellish place to live. <laughs> but there you go. Um, just a second. I've got it right here. Um, these vehicles will start at – Jeez, 51,000, and that's for, I think, a rear-wheel drive version. And then when you're getting for the fully loaded black label versions of the vehicle, which is more or less on what I had, you're getting $77,000 for the gas model and uh, $87,000 for the hybrid, which is a lot of money. Is anyone buying black label Lincolns? I've never seen one. But then again, I don't know what they look like. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen one either. Um, And if you have bought a black label Lincoln from like the get-go please you have to message us and black, black label experience. makes me think but, of like like launch edition versions of cars that no one buys you know like like lincoln makes a launch edition version of every one of its cars every year yeah. <laughs> and no one buys it no one knows um okay, so, so anything, i would anything say pretty successful, no pretty successful launch by by lincoln i think that they're trying to make a comeback and with the navigator and the aviator they're um they're succeeding in their in their current task we'll see how long they stay up because because um, Lincoln has always been they struggled, I think, to keep up with um, trends in the industry, and uh, they might look dated pretty quickly. And nothing looks worse than a dated luxury vehicle, I think, in some ca- in some cases. So uh, there's just one more thing that I wanted to talk about today. We had a listener write into us, Jay, and he asked – he sent a link to a – actually a pair of – it's a pair of now, but originally it was just one Fiat 500e. And he's like, buy it or don't buy it. So – that's an interesting question. Sammy, with a 500e, that's the electric version of the Fiat 500, right? Yeah, that's the electric version of the Fiat 500. And not only that, but the vehicles that he sent, uh, or the vehicle that he sent, I'm assuming it's uh, a- a- along the same pricing scheme, are about $10,000, which is a really good deal for so, an all-electric and uh, somewhat pu- somewhat enjoyable vehicle in the 500e. So the 500D has an interesting history. It was a compliance car, which means that the only reason Fiat built it was because they legally had to in order to sell vehicles in certain states, usually California. They require a certain percentage of your fleet be electric or all electric. And um, Sergio uh, Marcioni, when when this vehicle was built, he said he actually actively campaigned for people not to buy it. I love this about him. He (laughs) said, please don't buy it. It's it's costing us money. Yeah, it was they were losing money on every. Every model they sold because it cost a lot to build and they sold it at a very reasonable amount. But the, there's a couple other interesting things about this vehicle on the used market that make it really appealing. The first is they're dead cheap. I mean, they so were selling cheap. between like five and ten grand. You can in, in this vehicle is in Michigan, which is why it's more expensive. But in California, you can find them fairly cheap. The other cool thing, they have 400 pound feet of torque. I think <laughs> some crazy what? number like that. Yeah, they, they well, I might be mixing it up with the Spark EV, but um, I, mean, I know the Spark EV had uh, five four hundred twenty uh, pound feet of torque. You're right. Um, Wait, I'm I'm, I'm, I might be completely wrong about this. <laughs> That's but, um, that would be impressive, nonetheless. No, no, but, let me double, I'm double checking my my feature my 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 
Um, Fiat numbers? Yeah, sorry, I okay. was completely wrong. It is the Spark that has 400 pound-feet. The 500E has 111 horsepower and 150 pound-feet of torque, which is a oh. huge difference. But it is <laughs> it, it is available. Hey, it's actually apo- quicker. Apologize to the listeners, man. No, no, no. I, I it never look back. But um, it is actually quicker than the 400 pound-feet in the Spark EV. Yeah. And uh, it's something like oh, – this, this can't be right. <laughs> to Why? 60 miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, I I was just looking at this instrumented testing, and they're like talking about 3.2 seconds and 2.8 seconds, and I'm like, these vehicles are not this fast. <laughs> but I, I've actually, I've actually driven a uh, 500e uh, many years ago, and I really liked it. It, it gives Sammy and I were talking before the show. The 500e takes everything that's cool about the Fiat 500, which is the look and the yeah. form factor, and takes away everything about it that was horrible, which is all the all mechanics. Yeah, all, all the mechanical mechanical guts of this vehicle. Everything. Yeah, which, the powertrain just... of any 500 was, uh, except for the Abarth, I think, was abysmal. You would hate driving these things. Yeah. And so uh, it, it's it's kind of like the best of both worlds because they just went to a third party and they're like, make us a good electric motor. And then that's, that's what they did. So zero to 60 for that vehicle. Yeah. Um, let me let me double check here because I have a list of two points. You've already set it up really well. So two yeah, point it's, it's, no, 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 it's 8.7. <laughs> oh, that's not bad. Yeah. Zero to 30 is 2.8. Of course. Um, it's really good now that you mentioned that. <laughs> it does the quarter mile in 16.8, which is like. I'm willing to bet way faster than a gas version of the of course. the 500e. But um, uh, it's not the most. It doesn't have the biggest electric range. I think it gets 84 miles on a on a single charge, which isn't huge. Like it's not great. But if you're spending ten thousand dollars on one of these things, you know, as long as you know what you're in for, I think you'll be happy with the experience. You've got an adorable, uh, attractive car. Um, with a good punch to the motor, and I think you'll get a reasonably smooth driving experience. Yeah, if you're going to buy it just to drive around town, um, at this point in its life, you might only get like 70 miles per charge. But it's going to be a decent driving experience the whole time, and I think you'll like it, and it's not expensive. Uh, If if it's going to be your only car, I mean... EVs have gotten a lot better, but you're going to have to spend a ton more money on them. So that's that's kind of how that works out in my mind. So I say it's a buy if you want an EV that's not expensive. I mean, it's going to be way better than like a Mitsubishi i Mi EV, whatever they call that. That was a terrible vehicle. It's basically a golf cart. Uh, that was around that price range. Yeah. So uh, this is kind of a weird car. It's just you don't see them because of the compliance factor. They were only sold in a few states. And uh, if you can find one and drive it, uh, it's worth checking out. Absolutely. If you want to get in touch with us, just like uh, our listener did, and give us a question, ask us whether or not this card is cool or not, you want us to discuss something on the podcast, it's very easy to do so. All you have to do is come to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, and uh, there's a contact form. You fill that out. Bingo, bambo. We're in our inbox. Uh, I've never made up those kinds of words before, so this was the first time I've tried it, so I hope it went well. Other ways you can reach out to us, you can email us directly. Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com, or you can reach out to us on social media. Ben is on Instagram. You can find him at HuntingBenjamin, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. Additionally, if you go to the website, UnnamedAutomotivePodcast.com, I would suggest that you use the controls um, to subscribe to the podcast. The controls. Use the controls, everybody. (laughs) Don't take your hands off 10 and 3 or 18 and 6 on the controls. (laughs) Use the buttons at the top to subscribe to the podcast. We've got all of your favorite um, podcatchers there uh, represented. And if they're not there, um, we just don't know about them. So you've got to let us know. Sammy, are they buttons or are they controls? 
I would call them controls. Okay. And if you can't find your favorite podcatcher on our website, you can definitely find it on your podcatcher. Just search on the <laughs> Automotive Podcast. You will find us there. Sammy, what are we talking about next week? Uh, next week, I want to talk about the new Chevrolet Suburban in Tahoe. Um, and I think we're also going to talk about a Jeep Gladiator. Isn't that right? You drove that a is, Jeep? That is correct. So um, I, I spoiled it for you. Yeah, I guess I have nothing left to say. Everybody, thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. Bye.